Okay, it's happening. This is a podcast on English literature and poetry, and if you've made it to listening to this podcast, um, this is the very first episode being recorded now, and you may very well be the first listener in the world, which I think is a very exciting uh, prospect uh, for me to think that you may be uh, you may be listening to this um, in any uh, location, uh, doing anything right now. Uh, just a bit about myself. I'm sitting here in Eastbourne in uh, Sussex in England, and I've thought about doing a podcast for a long time, and I'm just putting one out there right now. I was a little bit taken uh, back how easy it was just playing around with my laptop to come to a podcast broadcasting site and the one I'm using is Podomatic and it has literally just said record your podcast um, so here goes and, and, I, and I just I popped up to the house just now because I thought it was a good podcast always have a little sound ident and the only thing I could find I'm afraid at this early stage in the podcast is this so this 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 uh, I think Tibetan prayer bell will signal our transition to the uh, from the prologue to the main substance of this podcast, which is all being recorded in one. I think that's there. That's how I'm going to have to do it. Okay, and if you're still with me, um, if you're still with me, this is going to be a podcast about a poem uh, from English literature because this particular podcast is going to be about poetry in English literature and today I am alone. Uh, I hope to be joined in subsequent podcasts by um, a, 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 a friend, an uh, interlocutor um, of some description. Uh, but just to get this first one off, uh, off the ground and up and running, uh, I'm going to talk about a poem by Shakespeare, a sonnet, a sonnet by Shakespeare. And I find it difficult to know quite how much to say about a sonnet, because uh, for some people listening to this podcast, if indeed that is you, um, you may be that you are very familiar with this uh, famous form of English poetry. Um, but it may be that other people come across this uh, podcast uh, at an earlier stage in their studies, and so it may be relevant to uh, just record very briefly what a sonnet is, just in, in its formal structure at least. So sonnet is a 14-line poem. Uh, each line is in... Ten syllables, uh, an iambic pentameter, so an iam is two syllables, unstressed and then stressed, and there are five iambic feet in this, in each line of a sonnet, of a Shakespearean sonnet, of course, it can be absolutely played around with, but the basic formal framework is 14 lines of uh, iambic pentameter. And so those of you who can do the maths on this will be able to see that a sonnet, if it followed the strict form, would have 14 times 10 syllables, it would have 140 syllables. And similarly, it would have 
70, uh, 70 iams, because each line has five uh, iams, which is uh, unstressed, stressed foot. And the foot, the iam, is sometimes held, and I'm not sure when this first entered into the uh, realm of English criticism, but the, the, the iam is sometimes held to have uh, the uh, same kind of stress as the heartbeat. So in that sense, it would be sort of unstressed stress, so it would be kind of... It's rather romantic and possibly fanciful idea about the the I am but of course you can imagine that there are other poetic feet uh, for example the the inverse of the I am would be stressed unstressed so it'd be more like like that or you could have the spondy sort of too stressed like where the, the stressed would be uh, the stress would be on both 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 sounds anyway that's the the iambic uh, meter and obviously pentameter means five, as in as in Pentagon, which I think is a five-sided building in the United States, or pentagram, or pentagon. I've already said pentagon. Uh, I'm struggling now for other pent things, but you can probably imagine that they exist. Religiously, of course, we have the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy and Numbers. Uh, let's hope that's right. So, this is a sonnet. I, I, I feel like I'm, excuse me for saying, rather rushing. I'm sort of looking at this uh, line rushing across the laptop screen. I think that's probably not helpful, so perhaps I'll just... Not look at that for a moment. This is a, a podcast about a sonnet by Shakespeare. And Shakespeare was born in 1564 during the reign of Queen Elizabeth and died in 1616, midway through the reign of James I. And this poem is from an earlier uh, phase of his career, probably written around about 1592-1593. Um, there's a lot of scholarship, of course, on Shakespeare's sonnets and uh, who they are directed towards, um, etc. The, the sonnets themselves actually were not even collected by Shakespeare and uh, put into just sort of a wider circulation <laughs> publication until, strangely enough, after the death of his mother. And um, I think the date of the first public uh, airing of the sonnets is later 1606, 1605, something of that nature. Whereas uh, scholarship suggests that they are written in the early 1590s. So he's born in 64, uh, 74, 84, so he's probably in his very late 20s uh, writing this sonnet we're going to hear. And he's writing them probably for uh, the third Earl of Southampton, 
whose name is Henry Risley. It has an extremely strange spelling, um, which is sort of W-R-I-O, I don't know, I'm just making this up now, but it's like W-R-I-O-T-H, so it's like Rioth, and then it's like E-S-L-E-Y or something, it's Rioth-asley, but it's apparently, as with many of these aristocratic names, there is a, um, a shibboleth, uh, a pronunciation, which only the initiated know, and... Uh, I have never met any Earls of Southampton, nor any of their close friends, uh, but I have gleaned that the correct pronunciation of this name was Risley, and uh, English aristocratic life is full of very analogous shibboleths, where the spelling of the name bears virtually no relationship to its pronunciation. And Henry Risley, the third Earl of Southampton, is a type sample of this phenomenon. Henry Risley was a little bit younger than Shakespeare, even. Um, by all accounts, a good-looking, uh, wealthy, um, I suppose the word would have been used in later centuries, would have been playboy. I don't think there is anything to suggest in uh, such scholarship as exists around Risley's early life that he was um, dedicated to piety, to self-improvement, or to learning new farming techniques from uh, neighbouring regions of Europe that may have been innovating on that skull. I think that Henry Risley was a, a young guy who had a lot going for him. And Shakespeare came into his circle and wrote a number of sonnets uh, which concern Risley's life. And the early sonnets mostly concern Shakespeare suggesting that Risley gets married and has a baby to... Um, continue the Risley line and the conceit of many of these poems is that Risley's beauty should not be allowed to leave the face of the earth and Risley's duty is to ensure that such beauty as he holds uh, is passed on to the next generation but over the course of the early sonnets Shakespeare's devotion to Risley seems to take on a more intimate um, tenor. And I suppose that this poem, this sonnet, which is called Love Conquers All, could be construed as a kind of poem to Risley. But then, as with many things in Shakespeare, there are a number of alternate interpretations. And this poem, this sonnet, could have very well been inspired by something altogether different. Of course, Shakespeare was married to Anne Hathaway, um, whom he had married some years earlier, when he was but 18. 
This could have been inspired by his wife. Or it could have been inspired by perhaps another passing or more fixed object of Shakespeare's affection. So the sonnet is known by the title Love Conquers All. There's a, a Latin uh, motto about uh, amor omnes vincent. Um, and I think what we will do in this podcast is I will read the poem um, and then we will make a few subsequent comments on the content of the poem. So if I may follow my proposed sound ident, I will now segue into the poem. When in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state, and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries, and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope, with what I most enjoy contented least. Yet in these thoughts, almost myself despising, haply I think on thee, and then my state, like unto lark at break of day, arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate, for thy sweet love remembered, such wealth brings, that then I scorn to change my state with kings. Well, what is a basic um, overview of that uh, poem? He says that when he is in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, he, all alone, beweeps his outcast state. He says thereby that when he's experiencing, I suppose, a, a, a black mood, a psychological state in which he is feeling disengaged from the world and also when he walks around he feels that other people are looking upon him as if he's not the success that he might like to be he he he, he feels uh, temporarily at least like he's out of favour and all of the things that perhaps go with that you know there's a psychological dimension to this isn't there that he he accepts it's just a mood because he says when in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes when, you know when I'm outside of kind of a buoyant positive mood 
and I feel that all of society really is looking at me in a, in a negative way. I all alone beweep my outcast state. In other words, it falls upon me solely to experience this. Um, he doesn't have anyone really that can perceive it. And partly that's because he, he recognises it is a, a question of perception. It's a question that um, it's not really subject to conversation or discussion because it's, it's really an, an internal um, process that he's going through. He says that he troubles deaf heaven with his bootless cries. And that's a rather characteristic Shakespeare line. And when Shakespeare is compared to other poets of the um, the early modern or the, 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 the English Renaissance or, uh, you know, let's say the 16th, 17th centuries, Shakespeare doesn't seem too bothered about referring to deaf heaven in other words he could get on his knees he could go through some religious um, penitent uh, prayer he could uh, go to the chapel for some confession some liturgical uh, intervention but you know he 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 says straight away in the second line here um, I all alone but weep my outcast state uh, and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries. That is to say, it's not a kind of a, it's not strong enough to say that God isn't listening, God doesn't care, but it's, I think, more about the recognition that this is not something which really is real, you know, that, 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 heaven is deaf to this because you know Shakespeare is the author architect and ultimately the um, the person who has to solve this issue but nevertheless um, he's not invoking uh, celestial intervention or help heaven is deaf and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries and I think there's a slight again bootless there's a slightly a recognition of infant infant infantile kind of um, unsophisticated um, unmanly uh, quality to his cries and of course cries there works both in the sense of a sort of a plead for help and of course in just a simple expression of dismay his cries and what does he do he and look upon myself and curse my fate and, and very clearly there that idea of internalizing the problem of introspection looking upon myself suddenly his eyes are upon himself uh, and he's cursing his fate that's quite a black a bleak expression isn't it he's cursing his fate he feels absolutely dismayed and dejected about his entire existence um, and that's compounded of course by by the by by what he's already said is in the first line that he feels in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes he has no great hope for the future he has no great uh, life arc or life journey and the people around him 
are looking at him with something bordering on contempt, as per the state he's in. And the second quatrain, quatrain is four lines of a sonnet, and sometimes in a sonnet the, um, the quatrains indicate a slight shift in focus and meaning, and, and that is certainly the case in this sonnet. Because the second quatrain, the second four lines, wishing me like to one more rich in hope, well that is something which we have all experienced on a pretty regular basis, I am sure. If you read that someone has won 160 million pounds on the Euro Millions Lottery, you're, you're quite likely to wish that you were like that person who is rich in hope. But that is just rich. And he, he, he's wishing himself like to one more rich in hope. So one who seems to be dynamic and um, progressing in their life journey. Someone who has got a positive life direction and dynamic, which at this moment he, he does not have. He wishes, Shakespeare wishes, that he was featured like him. In other words, uh, he, he resembled him, he was featured like him, he looked like him, like him with friends possessed. And that is a very painful admission of kind of psychological uh, jealousy that you might experience, but you could only experience in the state that Shakespeare is in. In other words, he's, he's feeling disconnected from the world and other people seem like they've got friends, whereas he feels like he has none. He says he desires this, desiring this man's art and that man's scope. In other words, whatever it is, he wants to be more like that person who seems to have something going on, who seems to have it together, who seems to have the right clothes, the right job, the right car, perhaps we would say today. Um, and that man's scope, what that man's doing, done something, he, he has a life. And Shakespeare reflects in this last line of the the first eight lines, the first octet, sometimes called, with what I most enjoy contented least. With what I most enjoy contented least. In other words, all of the things that I thought I was interested in, and that could be anything, couldn't it? Or any hobbies that he has, any activities and daily <laughs> practices that he has, uh, suddenly seem like ashes in his hand. It's a it's a dark place that he is in when in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes. Yet in these thoughts, myself almost despising, and that word despising, it's 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 a form of hatred, but again it's coming from uh, a, a psychological. Um, an emotional condition. He's almost despising himself. Yet in these thoughts, myself almost despising, haply I think on thee. Now, haply is both happily and also by a, by a lucky chance, by a happenstance. I think on thee. And that, of course, is where the entire poem changes. This is what we might call a volta in a poem, uh, which just is, is a posh word, 
meaning change, meaning um, an abrupt shift. And this is indeed a volta, because he says, Haply I think on thee. And this is a person that, in his mind, in his mind's eye, exudes positivity and it's left to us to infer what those emotions might be we know they're positive um and i think you would you know you would generally imagine this to be uh, an image of romantic love in, in 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 some sense romantic love or great friendship Yet in these thoughts, myself almost despising, happily I think on thee, and then my state. Like to the lark at break of day arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. Where you have one of the most beautiful vaulters in English poetry, I think. That the lark, of course, at break of day, in the dawn, wakes up and flies up arising and the earth is described as sullen because it's it's the night earth it's the dark earth it's cold it's sullen it's unwilling to participate but the lark at break of day arising from sullen earth sings hymns at heaven's gate, it rises, it soars into the sky, into this welkin, as Shakespeare would have it, this this celestial realm. His state, like to the lark at break of day, rising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. That idea of deaf heaven is paralleled down here with the singing of hymns at heaven's gate the full belief the full torrent of joy in the bird's natural ecstasy for thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings that then I scorn to change my state with kings well the last line he says he, he would scorn to change his state with kings. In other words, once he has remembered this person and this person's love, then he could imagine the richest kings around the world. And at that time, of course, you had these great potentates in Europe with their huge palaces and people of repute and fame from history and from further away. But he would scorn to change his state with any of those. Uh, because thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings. And it is in a way an essay on emotional balance and feeling. Um, and the fleeting individual psychology of hour to hour, day to day, the fact that it can change so rapidly is implicit in the poem. That the way in which he perceives the world can be influenced by a single thought and 
the Volta, the change in his thought can be so profound. But it is also, of course, a paean of praise to love, and hence the title, Love Conquers All. Well, I'm extremely pleased that uh, you have listened this far, if indeed you have. Um, and uh, thank you very much for listening to the very first episode. And, and like I say, I want to get this episode recorded because I want to learn how to use Podomatic and upload this uh, podcast. I know that you shouldn't probably talk about these technical issues in your podcasts uh, because one should probably have a veneer of uh, sophistication and expertise. But all of that notwithstanding, uh, we are now approaching the half an hour mark and it's time for me to sign off. And I think I will sign off with my with my sound ident that I've just brought down and invented. So thank you very, very much for listening to this podcast on Shakespeare's sonnet, Love Conquers All, and I will see you next time.